Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's still flu season here in the United States, but a new virus has captured the latest headlines. Federal officials have called an outbreak of a respiratory illness caused by new coronavirus a public health emergency. To date, 11 cases have been confirmed in this country. Coming up, we learn more about this latest strain of coronavirus, first identified in the Chinese city of Wuhan. We'll be joined by a Connecticut native who's covering the story for the Wall Street Journal from China, the center of the epidemic. First, there's so much happening in politics this week, from the Iowa caucuses to the final days of the impeachment trial in the Senate. But the president also delivers his State of the Union address tonight. Will you be watching? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome our first guest to the show via Skype. Jennifer Hopper is Associate Professor of Political Science at Southern Connecticut State University, also author of the book Presidential Framing in the 21st Century News Media, The Politics of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Jennifer, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. I was hoping to start off talking about the big winner from the Iowa caucuses, but we all woke up this morning uh, hearing that there's been a big mess in Iowa. Results uh, delayed because of problems reporting precinct results. Uh, NPR reported that multiple county chairs on the ground in Iowa blamed malfunctions, including on an app used to report results. Uh, Jennifer, what's your response uh, to this, uh, again, this big story out of Iowa today? Yes, I should say at the outset, I'm sorry, I also do not have the Iowa results. I am, <laughs> I am not privy to those either. Um, it's, it's a difficult situation. You know, on the one hand, I think there is a very significant reaction because there is so much buildup to this first contest for years. We talk about the 2020 race uh, and then to not have immediate results, I think, is very frustrating, particularly for reporters and for commentators. And we're so used to getting information, you know, lightning quick uh, in the present day. At the same time, this is a major problem. It's a huge problem uh, for Iowa, for the Iowa State Democratic Party. And it has real consequences for the candidates and, and for the campaigns. It's also not totally clear what has happened to cause some of these delays. And I think not being very forthcoming with any results or a lot of the information has also increased a lot of the frustration around what happened in Iowa last night. Uh, Jennifer, you mentioned, again, uh, we don't quite know all the details about, uh, again, this malfunction that happened in Iowa, uh, resulting in uh, Iowa officials, Democratic Party officials saying that these results from the caucuses to be reported later on Tuesday. But it really does um, add to uh, how Americans perceive uh, our elections process. And uh, over the last uh, few years, uh, hearing about hacks, uh, then thinking about how technology, can can we have confidence? in technology as we look to future elections? I mean, what is your response uh, to those concerns? Uh, it's it's a huge problem. And, uh, you know, it's a bit funny that 
what Iowa has assured us is don't worry, we have all the results on paper, right? The oldest of those technologies that they have uh, paper counts of all of the caucus goers votes and um, who should be awarded delegates and so that we shouldn't be concerned. But clearly, right, as more and more of our lives become attached to the internet and technologies and smartphones, you know, we would hope to be transitioning to more of those online forums. There are ways that more people could potentially participate in the process to actually go to the Iowa caucuses and to spend a few hours with your neighbors going back and forth over what candidates to support. That takes a lot of time and mobility that not every person in Iowa or in the country would be able to actually invest in the process. And yet when we can't necessarily have the complete confidence and the ability to use apps and to use these online forums to be able to report the results or to even cast votes, uh, you know, it certainly narrows then some of those options that we have to make the system more participatory. It is also true that we're living in an era in which some politicians do try to exploit moments like this uh, to call into question then election results and the integrity of voting processes. And the less faith that people have in those systems also tends to result in a lower willingness to participate. And that's something that we see in political science research as well. When people don't have a lot of faith in the process, but they're less likely to want to be invested in it. They're less likely to want to participate themselves. And we think of a healthy democracy really encouraging the most people to participate and people having some faith in the electoral process. I mentioned uh, the results for the Iowa caucuses uh, coming uh, later on Tuesday, uh, but uh, what, what was your reaction to hearing from some of these candidates, how they were trying to spin that they were probably likely the winners as they, they moved towards New Hampshire, Jennifer? Yes, I guess, you know, what have you got to lose? They're not <laughs> reporting any winners, so you might as well go out there, I guess, and, you know, energize your supporters by saying, looks like we did great, looks like we won. And that was certainly a strategy that Pete Buttigieg employed, you know, in particular for him. He is a bit of a longer shot candidacy amongst the 2020 contenders. So uh, for him, uh, definitely in this kind of category of a uh, little left to lose by going out and proclaiming himself the victor or uh, appearing to do that in some of his remarks. And in fact, it seems as though that speech is getting a lot of news attention, which uh, is exactly what, what the campaign would like. One of the problems uh, for some of the candidates is that without those Iowa results, what they, where they were previously counting on media reports of how well that they did or of their victory, kind of carrying them through the week and hopefully building momentum for future contests, suddenly they have lost that opportunity. And so for like a Pete Buttigieg or a Bernie Sanders who appeared positioned to do well, uh, this is a significant setback, what has happened in Iowa. You know, at the same time, um, with what you're, you're saying, some of the candidates proclaiming, oh, we seem to do so well, you actually did not hear much like that from the Biden camp. And so it's possible that even internally, the Biden campaign knows that maybe it appeared that they were not going to perform very well uh, in Iowa. And so maybe not having results helps a candidate like Joe Biden. It might help a candidate like Michael Bloomberg who chose not to compete in Iowa at all. So there are certainly there's some candidates who may appear to be winners and losers and some who are willing to proclaim themselves winners following last night. 
And you're talking about what's known as uh, the bounce, uh, the importance of Iowa being uh, the first contest in this presidential campaign. Yes, that's right. Uh, The virtue of going first, even though Iowa has a relatively small number of delegates that go to the Democratic National Nominating Convention, roughly 40 something, because they do get to go first, uh, they tend to take over the news cycle and build that kind of momentum for a candidate who is the winner or a candidate who does better than expected. Um, And so they tend to have an outsized influence on the process. But that's really called into question now. All of the news attention and kind of the public conversation is about the problems with the process. And it's less likely that it's giving any particular candidate that kind of a bump, even if uh, results, actual results are announced later today or later this week. Uh, You're hearing uh, via Skype uh, my first guest here on Where We Live, Jennifer Hopper, Associate Professor of Political Science at Southern Connecticut State University. As we talk about uh, this very busy week in politics, I I wanted to transition from the Iowa caucuses again. um, As we talk, uh, no results are being reported just yet uh, about who who won uh, those caucuses. But uh, tonight's actually a very big night for President Trump. I believe it's his third State of the Union address. Uh, This is all happening while tomorrow... uh, The U.S. Senate is expected to vote, uh, and all reports uh, say that there will be a likely acquittal. So what can we expect to hear from President Trump? Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been some early reports about what might be included uh, in President Trump's Trump's State of the Union speech. And uh, one of the points of speculation was that rather than talk about impeachment, uh, that he'd be more likely to talk about what his administration perceives as their accomplishments over the past few years and sort of setting up the president to make the case for reelection and um, for uh, why voters should give him another four years in 2020. The State of the Union address tends to be more policy focused anyway. uh, And President Trump, although he's sort of known for some of his rhetoric and communications that often don't fall in line with how past presidents have, have tend to speak to the public, When it comes to these joint addresses to Congress, uh, President Trump has tended to give more typical speeches, more typical addresses. They've actually been times over the past few years in which uh, people have said that President Trump has appeared the most traditionally or typically presidential in some of his oral communications to the public. Um, So it appeared as though he was going to speak about some of the economic gains of the past few years of uh, the administration's success at remaking the courts, appointing a number of conservative judges in the Super Bowl commercial that the Trump administration aired this past weekend. They highlighted his actions on criminal justice issues. So you might expect to see some more of that in the speech tonight as well, if all goes according to plan, <laughs> if he sticks to the script. And that is my next question. Uh, this president known to uh, talk uh, off the cuff, uh, this uh, impeachment process fairly contentious. Uh, any sense of of what it'll be like to be inside uh, that chamber when you have uh, one party looking to impeach the president and the other uh, hoping to get him off? Yes, uh, partisanship is always quite apparent at the State of the Union address, and it is visually and audibly apparent uh, by virtue of who is applauding uh, particular lines in the president's speech, who's sitting down. Uh, The news uh, cameras tend to focus in, or C-SPAN cameras tend to focus in on particular faces. 
of members of Congress who are either very happy with what the president is saying or very unhappy. Uh, that level of partisanship is not specific or distinctive to this president and all presidents and their State of the Union addresses in the modern era have really experienced that. In past addresses, sometimes President Trump has appeared bothered by that and has made a few stray comments about the side of the room, the Democratic side of the room, uh, sitting there and, and not applauding, not standing at some of the lines that are intended to produce that kind of reaction. Uh, so we'll kind of see uh, if he says anything to that effect at, in this particular address. It has often appeared somewhat difficult for President Trump to completely ignore his critics and ignore what he perceives as attacks on him. But there's sort of an interesting corollary, corollary to be made to President Clinton giving a State of the Union address in 1999 in the midst of an impeachment trial. Um, and what the Clinton strategy appeared to be was to ignore impeachment entirely, to just focus on we're doing the work of the presidency, we're focused on the work of the American people, and to really kind of push aside everything that's happening in the impeachment vein. Part of their effort to paint impeachment as a partisan effort to oust the president. So I think in theory, that is what the Trump administration would like to do as well. I think that's certainly what leaders in the Republican Party would like to see President Trump do. Um, but it is is not clear, right, that he will he will do that. I would say absolutely. If you looked at the teleprompter, I think that President Trump's speech probably doesn't make a lot of references to his detractors and impeachment. But whether he chooses to say something that is off the teleprompter, you know, I, I'm I'm uh, not a betting woman, so I probably <laughs> would not offer a prediction on that specifically. But there's certainly a good chance. Of uh, Jennifer, uh, do we have any sense of how many Americans will be tuning in to the State of the Union address? I ask that question because, uh, you know, there are many people who've been paying attention to the impeachment trial, but uh, this gives uh, President Trump the opportunity to speak to those uh, millions of voters who may not have been, a been following this uh, impeachment coverage each and every day. Yes. Um, so generally, uh, the ratings for the State of the Union uh, have been sort of worse in the era in which people have more options, more things to watch right? in the cable news era, uh, in the era or just cable television generally, right? That entertainment programming goes up against the State of the Union address or that the Internet and streaming options offer an infinite number of choices for people who maybe don't particularly want to watch that speech. So you don't quite have the same captive audience as you once did when there were just three television networks. And if you were going to watch TV at that particular time, then you were going to be locked into the State of the Union address. At the same time, it does have a substantial amount of pomp and circumstance and kind of symbolic value. It is um, a ceremonial event that people do often tune into. And it is an opportunity for President Trump to address the nation, as you're indicating. President Trump's Political support, however, is a little bit different than other recent uh, presidents. That much of his political backing does rest on his base and the base of the Republican Party. His approval ratings, as we know, have been relatively low and relatively consistent over the early years of his presidency. And so for President Trump, no matter the form that he's speaking in, even a State of the Union address that's sort of designed to be uh, for a national audience, often the audience that he's typically geared toward 
is his base, uh, is the base of the Republican Party, are committed Trump voters that he does need to keep in his corner in order to maintain right, that level of consistent support, even if it's a bit lower uh, than approval ratings of, of other presidents, of his predecessors. And Jennifer, as we look to, again, this campaign season uh, really starting to heat up, uh, I mentioned that uh, a Senate acquittal is likely, but how will this impact what messages the Democratic candidates are sending uh, to, uh, again, the, the potential voters, uh, but also uh, Republican senators who may be up for election this fall? Yeah, so on the one hand, um, it does appear that pretty certain that uh, President Trump will be acquitted and he'll be able to tout that acquittal um, or he'll be able to tout the committed support of Republicans uh, in backing his uh, side of the story in terms of impeachment. But in moving forward, this has now dragged out into the public a number of new details about some of the controversies involving his actions uh, with regard to Ukraine. Uh, and it does appear as though the story really isn't over. So John Bolton has this book that potentially will be released or more developments, more information from that book will be released in the weeks ahead. We may find out more about President Trump's actions with regard to the president of Ukraine. And so the fact that that story will continue to trickle out is potentially problematic for the president, even as he's won an acquittal of the fact that it doesn't sort of put a cap on the story or an end on the story know, is um, something that may be an issue for him, especially the closer that you get to election day. I think the hope of the president would be that that story was behind him, that it would be something that voters would forget about, or at least it would not be at the forefront of their minds and thinking about the election. And that may not be something that he's able to enjoy. For Democrats, uh, on the one hand, the story also involves Joe Biden and Joe Biden's son. So depending on how the Democratic nomination race goes, uh, those developments may also not be uh, that that great for um, the Democratic nominee if Joe Biden was ultimately able to secure the nomination. But it appeared as though Democrats in Congress really also needed to play to their base to show that they were holding the president accountable for what their party was arguing was major wrongdoing, malfeasance, abuse of power, et cetera. And so it may energize the Democratic base to have called the president to account to this, uh, to have you know publicly sort of forced Republicans and many Republican senators who are up for re-election in swing states, in precarious electoral circumstances, to force them to go on record about what they thought about some of this behavior. And you've seen some you know, prominent Republicans having to say, you know, I don't agree with what the president did or that they wouldn't have done things in the same way, even as they vote to acquit him. So those things are potentially politically damaging to the president. Uh, and um, certainly, right, they put many of those Republican senators, especially in states like Colorado and Maine, uh, Tennessee, they put them in a difficult scenario. I want to thank Jennifer Hopper for joining us today via Skype, Associate Professor of Political Science at Southern Connecticut State University. Jennifer, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. 
Thank you. I apologize for the quality of my voice as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, Thanks so much. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, a new strain of coronavirus is at the center of an outbreak in China. The respiratory illness has spread to other countries, including here in the U.S. After the break, we talk with a Connecticut native who's covering that story. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. You've likely heard of coronavirus by now, but how much do we actually know about this latest strain? The outbreak of the respiratory illness has affected more than 20,000 people, mostly in China. My next guest has covered this story for the Wall Street Journal. She's also a Connecticut native. Uh, joining us via Zoom is Julie Wernow, who uh, originally is from Waterford, Connecticut, and used to work for the Day of New London. Uh, Julie, welcome to our show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You can also join our conversation, 888-720-9677, especially if you've been following the coronavirus stories. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I first want to give credit to uh, the day's Karen Florin for writing about uh, you, uh, Julie, letting us know that you were covering this very big story uh, from China. So uh, tell us about how you ended up in in Beijing and what has it been like uh, in in China as this uh, outbreak has uh, intensified? Well, uh, I started working for the Wall Street Journal uh, about five years ago, and I was writing at the time about developing countries and their financial markets. And of course, China is the most important one. Uh, So after a while, I was talking to investors so much about China, I thought maybe it's time that I move there. So uh, a little over a year ago, I took the plunge and I moved to China sight unseen. I had never even been to China before I showed up. And, um, you know, the, the first year has been quite an adventure, as you can imagine. It's uh, a bustling, global, exciting, international city. Um, things are moving, you know, at the speed of sound in China People are doing a lot of the same things that, you know, you would do if you were in a big city in the U.S. They're taking spin classes, they're drinking craft beer, uh, they're building businesses, etc. And then, um, you know, just all of a sudden, a few days ago, really, um, everything just shut down. Uh, when this coronavirus showed up, uh, I think at first, nobody took it too, too seriously. It was just a few cases. China has 1.4 billion people in it. So when you look at these numbers, that's something to kind of keep in perspective. But as the the rate of the virus uh, spreading started to grow quite rapidly, seemingly overnight, uh, people really, really got started to get scared. Now, I understand, uh, again, that the Chinese government has pretty much closed off uh, the province where the city Wuhan is located, where, uh, again, the uh, new virus uh, first appeared. Uh, But you were reporting from Beijing. So tell us about how um, you saw Chinese officials responding and really how far away is Wuhan from uh, Beijing? Uh, Yeah, Wuhan is quite far away from Beijing. Um, I I sometimes like to think of... uh, China is, is like the size of the United States or it's not quite, it's a little off from there. But I mean, if you, if, if you're in the U S trying to imagine the country, you can 
imagine if something, you know, was happening, um, you know, a few hours flight away from you. Uh, that's where the epicenter of this virus is. It's a big uh, car manufacturing area, actually. Uh, so there's a lot of automakers that are hurting right now that you would have heard of, um, like Honda, for instance. So um, this thing was happening pretty far away from me. And um, but Beijing, you know, that's where the government is really centered. And so what we saw is uh, what some people have said is a very rapid response and what other have criticized as uh, quite the opposite. So this all started happening during a very uh, difficult time for China, which is the Lunar New Year holiday. So once a year, pretty much everyone in China is traveling. Uh, a lot of Chinese don't get a lot of time off. This is the one rare opportunity that they do. People are getting on trains and planes and they're going back to their hometowns to spend a significant amount of time together. And so this, this virus started to take off um, a little bit before that uh, travel period started. And they didn't really start to lock down these cities until a significant period of time after when everyone would have started leaving for the holidays. So essentially, you've got people who might be carrying a disease that has a 14-day lag in some cases before anyone shows any symptoms. And they're traveling all over the country and all over the world. Uh, there's estimates that Chinese were expected to visit 100 countries this year. Um, outbound travels become quite popular in China. And so uh, now we're seeing, of course, all these uh, countries, including the U.S., putting restrictions on travel from China, um, checking down passengers. We've had countries ship back people who were coming to China um, to visit. Uh, but a lot of this is happening pretty far after uh, the, the height of that uh, Lunar New Year travel season. What has been the response in China with, again, how the government has ha handled this in terms of putting 11 million people on lockdown, uh, trying to build a hospital, I believe, uh, in, a, in 10 days? I think they're close. Are people getting the needed uh, care uh, within the country? What do we know? Yeah, I mean, now that lockdown's extended to, I think it's about 60 million people. So imagine that. Um, that's a huge, an unprecedented uh, number of people, nobody's ever seen anything like this in world history, um, who are um, essentially locked in many cities in their homes. Um, there are cities that are saying, you know, allowing one member of a family to come outdoors once every two days um, with a mask on only to uh, acquire some of the most basic household needs, you know, food and, and water, essentially. Um, and so really, uh, so far, the response I've seen from people in China, uh, a lot of people are, are abiding by this. And in some cases, not only abiding by it, but doing it um, unnecessarily. So you have people who are in cities that are not locked down, where they have had no exposure whatsoever to anyone who's been sick or been in a region where anyone's been sick, and they are um, choosing to self-quarantine themselves for two weeks um, even in my apartment complex where I live, uh, people are choosing not to go outdoors unless absolutely necessary. Everywhere you go, people are wearing masks and really taking what the government's saying about staying inside to heart. 
you see banners everywhere that say things um, essentially that translate to, you know, having guests in your home is dangerous, um, that, you know, with, uh, that you shouldn't try to shake hands with people. Uh, it's, it's a very isolating environment right now in China, but that's exactly what the government is hoping to do. Uh, via Zoom today here on Where We Live is Julie Wernow, reporter with The Wall Street Journal. She uh, covers uh, China from Beijing. She's actually a native of Connecticut, used to work for the Day of New London newspaper. You can join us as we talk about uh, this new coronavirus that, again, uh, started in Wuhan, uh, China, but now has spread um, in many countries, including here in the U.S., just 11 confirmed cases in our country. The number to call in, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888 9677. Uh, before I take a call uh, again, Julie, we should uh, just mention again, this is a new coronavirus, as I mentioned, uh, similar to um, another form is the, the common cold. I mean, what do we know exactly about uh, this new strain? That's right. Uh, it, it's a, the coronavirus, another form of coronavirus you all would have heard of is the common cold. Um, in this case, you know, people were at first uh, comparing it to SARS um, because it does attack the lungs. And, and usually when you see these, these cases, it's because it's led to pneumonia. And if you think about, you know, how deadly pneumonia can be, especially among certain age groups, that's where we see the death rate coming from. Um, what's interesting is this, this is definitely spreading uh, more rapidly than SARS. Um, it's already bigger than SARS ever was, which was a huge, you know, caused a pretty big economic crisis. Uh, but it is far less deadly so far based on what we know about the death rate. So um, it's, it's about 2.2% of people are actually dying from this disease. We still need to some time because it does take, it has quite a bit of a lag time. Um, but that's, that is fortunate that it doesn't um, seem to be quite as deadly as some diseases we've seen in the past. Again, you can join us at 888-720-9677. Uh, Joseph's calling from Purchase, New York. Joseph, what's your question or comment? Hi, um, it's great to be on the show. Um, my question is, uh, since the outbreak of the coronavirus, there's been a lot of racist sentiment toward it, towards the Asian population. And I was just wondering your general reaction to that. Uh, thank you, Joseph, uh, for your call. Uh, Julie, what is uh, the re- has been the reaction? Yeah, that's been um, that's been an unfortunate side effect, of course, of this. Um, and and I I will say, as someone who is not ethnically Chinese, it's it's um, anyone really who's traveled to China. Um, I had to travel recently to Paris, and you know I've been quite reticent to tell people where I've been flying in from. People are so afraid. Um, I think that you know it's unfortunate that in times like this that uh, we we sort of pick the wrong thing to uh to turn on each other about um and uh yeah it's it's definitely something that we're seeing in terms of just a very massive you know in some cases overreaction to to a disease that yes we don't know that much about yet but um you know in in the united states alone we've had you know something like eight thousand people die this year from the flu in this case you know we're talking about uh deaths in hundreds so far so um, it, 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 in, there's a little bit of illogical uh, reaction going on here to, uh, to this disease globally.
And we'll be talking about that coming up with uh, Kaiser Health News uh, about uh, the fact that this is also happening during the U.S. flu season. And this is something that um, more people should be concerned about uh, versus this uh, low possibility of catching this new new coronavirus. Uh, But I did want to go back, uh, Julie Wernow, uh, to uh, when we were talking about how China pretty much locked down, uh, as you mentioned, now 60 million people. Uh, Any concerns outside China about any kind of human human rights concerns because of what China um, is known for as being authoritarian. And while if it's a global health emergency, it's important to try to keep uh, new infections, uh, any concerns about uh, their approach? You know, I think that that's a, that's a really good question. It's a question that we've been asking. And I know that we have um, some reporters who are, are working on that coverage. Um, I think what was interesting to me just as an observer was seeing how, you know, the, the response globally, I think from, you know, from WHO, from the United States was very much, you know, the U.S. is, I mean, that China is doing the right thing, um, that they're, they're getting control over this virus. Um, and I think that if you look at it from, you know, a top down kind of perspective, you can see that. I mean, they're, they're trying to get people to isolate in their homes. I think that the, the, the human rights issue that, that is concerning here is that um, in China, you're seeing regular everyday people being empowered to, uh, to keep people in their homes in a way that, you know, does have you questioning where this authority is coming from. And so, for instance, you know, there are neighborhood uh, cadres that are um, tasked with, you know, going around from door to door asking where people have been traveling. Um, you know, we have people, I have friends who uh, are staying in hotels where they're getting their temperature checked nine, 10 times a day and being, you know, forced to stay inside even when, you know, their temperatures are really relatively normal. Um, there's just a lot of paranoia mixed with um, regular everyday people being empowered to uh, take take control over the freedom of their neighbors. And so I think that in time, you know, this will probably go down in the history books as a very significant time in history where um, this was sort of allowed to go on. Uh, Julie, I should mention uh, you were out of uh, China for a few days at a conference. You're heading back to Beijing, I believe, uh, tomorrow. Uh, you know, as y- your work as a journalist, uh, sometimes reporting from places that can be dangerous to your health. What has been the reaction from your, your family and friends about your work? Well, I imagine that my mother, who's still in Connecticut, is probably listening to this right now and also trying to get some information about that. Um, you know, I've had... Uh, you know, friends and, and, and family ask me, you know, if it, if it makes sense for me to go back to China. I'm, um, I'm actually still in Paris right now. I've been trying to get back to Beijing. Uh, we've got airlines canceling flights. I've had to reroute my, my flight possibly twice um, to get back there. And um, I, I feel very safe um, in terms of I have all the equipment that I need to keep myself safe. I am doing a lot of reporting, honestly, you know, you at a certain point, you're inside a lot as well. We've shut down our office um, to protect our own employees. And I have all the hand sanitizer I could 
could stand for the next year and a half now that I've uh, been able to acquire some outside of the country. So I hope to get back and I hope to uh, be able to bring some supplies to my coworkers as well who are facing some shortages um, inside China for just basic uh, protective gear. Well, we want to thank you for joining us, Julie. We hope you uh, stay healthy. Julie Wernow, reporter with the Wall Street Journal in Beijing, originally from Waterford, Connecticut. She used to work for the Day of New London. Again, um, has been covering uh, this new coronavirus outbreak in China. Julie, thanks again. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, as I mentioned, this outbreak in China of new coronavirus is happening while the U.S. is in the middle of flu season. After the break, we talk with Kaiser Health News, and you can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, we've been learning about the new coronavirus that has sickened up to 20,000 people, mostly in China. To date, there are 11 cases of coronavirus in the United States. Now, this outbreak is happening during our flu season, but why is coronavirus getting so much attention? Uh, joining us by phone is Liz Zabo, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Liz, welcome to our show. Nice to be here. Uh, So I mentioned that uh, people are probably uh, hearing about coronavirus over the last few days, worried about uh, their likelihood of getting this virus. Uh, From your uh, talking with public health officials, how worried should people be? Not worried. (laughs) Not worried at all. I'm not an MD myself, but I've talked to some of the smartest infectious disease experts in the country. And they tell me when we think about the relative danger of this coronavirus to Americans versus the flu, there's just no comparison. The flu is a much, much bigger danger. And how bad has the flu season been? I believe we're in the peak. Yep, yep. Flu peaks uh, every year just just about this time. Uh, We've had 19 million illnesses. Um, So you compare that to the 20,000 cases of of, uh, coronavirus, that's that's quite a bit more. Um, We've had 180,000 hospitalizations, 10,000 deaths, uh, including at least 68 children. And uh, every year there are previously healthy kids who succumb to the flu. Mm. Uh, We've heard from public health officials here in Connecticut, uh, Dr. Richard Martinello, Medical Director in Infectious Prevention at Yale New Haven Hospital, at a press conference uh, just this past Friday. We're certainly experiencing a year that has been very challenging for us. Um, As as has been mentioned, we've seen quite a few patients uh, in our hospital and unfortunately have experienced many deaths across our state. And the latest uh, numbers that we have here in Connecticut from the Department of Health as of January 25th, more than 1,000 hospitalizations uh, due to influenza, uh, up to 23 deaths so far uh, this season. Uh, And so we hear again about um, some of these cases, and we just heard uh, from you that public health officials say you shouldn't be worried about coronavirus, you should be worried about the flu. But why are Americans, uh, you know, not that concerned? I understand that um, there are majority of Americans who still don't get the flu vaccine, Liz. That's right. Only 45% of adults uh, got the flu vaccine uh, in the most recent count. They did a little bit better for kids, 62% of kids. But Americans really do um, 
blow off the flu vaccine, and there are a lot of speculations why. Um, in some ways, people think maybe just the fact that there is a vaccine makes people more blasé about it. They think, well, if doctors can develop a vaccine, they understand it. Um, I, when you have a choice of getting a vaccine or not, it puts a ball in your court, you're in control, and people feel much better about their lives in general when they're in control. So just the fact that they have a choice of getting the vaccine, even if they don't get it, somehow reduces their fears. Um, and I think people say, too, the fact that this is a, quote-unquote, foreign virus. You know, it, it's the Wuhan virus. Um, people are afraid of the Ebola virus, the Zika virus. Anything that comes from overseas seems a little more exotic, a little, uh, a little more mysterious. Um, there could be some xenophobia mixed in with all of that and just fear of the foreign uh, when we think about that, I think what, maybe it was one of the stories that, that you quoted a, a medical professional saying if, if the flu had a, a more exotic name, we'd take it seriously. Yeah, that, that's right. I, I remember talking to uh, Dr. Paul Laffitt from Children's Hospital a few years ago when a, a virus called EVD-68 was going around and people were worried about it. And that sounds like a very futuristic, uh, you know, sort of Star Wars type name for a virus. Uh, and he, he pointed out that rubella, also known as German measles, um, is actually much more dangerous for a pregnancy in babies than Zika virus was, and yet there are people who aren't getting vaccinated uh, with the MMR, which protects against measles, mumps, rubella. And um, I think some people think uh, they fear the devil. Um, they don't know more than the devil they know. Mm. Um, one person on Twitter said, oh, they tell us about the flu every year. It's old news. Mm. I think, yeah, old news that can kill you. Um, you know, 10,000 deaths just so far this year. Um, in comparison, if people were to get the flu shot, the CDC estimates that would prevent 6 million people from ever getting sick. Um, it would prevent 91,000 hospitalizations and almost 6,000 deaths. And I, I, I looked up some statistics just to put those deaths in perspective. Eliminating 6,000 flu deaths, that's about the same as eliminating all deaths from melanoma. Hmm. So um, the flu is really no more old news than cancer is. And is there just uh, people just assume that the flu is just a bad cold? Can you walk us through again uh, why this is so serious? Yes, I think part of the reason people underestimate the flu is that we toss the word flu around um, a little too freely. Uh, Anyone with a bad cold assumes they have a, a flu. Anyone with a stomach bug calls it the flu. Um, but there are pretty clear differences between influenza and a cold. You're not going to die from a cold. You can die from influenza. Influenza, it's the sort of thing where if you really have it, you know it. It, it tends to hit you like a Mack truck. Um, it brings you down hard and fast. You get a fever. You get headache. Uh, you could be having sweating. Um, in addition to the cough, with with the cold that tends to come on slowly, you feel a little feel feel a little tickle in your throat, and and over the next few days you get more and more symptoms. Um, they're just very different illnesses. We hear again medical professionals saying that the very young and the elderly are are most susceptible. Do you think that also plays into it, where um, most adults think, well, I'm I'm fairly healthy, I can I can deal with it if I get it. Yeah, I, I have heard that. I've, I've heard from people on Twitter over the years who say, I never get a flu shot and I, I never get sick, or, oh, I'm a big, strong guy, I'm a young guy, if I get the flu, I'll tough it out. And to that I say, great for you. It's great that you're young and, and strong, 
but maybe you live in a neighborhood with a newborn baby just home from the hospital. And when babies are little, uh, they can't get the flu shot until they're six months old. It just doesn't work on them. If you gave it to them before six months, it, it wouldn't work. And those little babies have tiny, tiny airways that can swell shut. Um, and that's why babies are at a huge risk from respiratory illnesses. And older people, are there any old people in your neighborhood? Um, my mom's 88. If Even if I thought the flu shot wouldn't help me, I would get it to protect her. Mm. Liz Zabo is joining us by phone, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, as we talk about uh, influenza, the flu season uh, so far. You know, here in Connecticut, there have been about 4,800 positive influenza tests specifically for that strain B. And so I wanted to ask you, Liz, that when we hear about this vaccine every year, you know, the efficacy rate um, is different. And when people hear that they're still testing positive the flu despite getting the vaccine, does that also, uh, you know, breed indifference uh, for future years. It's, it's true. I mean, part of, part of the lack of enthusiasm for the flu shot is, is legitimate. It's not our strongest shot. Um, with measles, that's a great shot. Two doses of measles shots um, provide 98% protection. So that's a terrific vaccine. The flu shot is never really that great. Um, they, it's made every year in response to whatever viruses are floating around the world. The efficacy is sometimes as high as 60%, sometimes more like 20%. So um, a lot of people may think, well, 20 to 60% protection is not that big a deal. Why do I have to get this shot? Um, but, but again, even as imperfect as this flu shot is, and doctors are actively trying to make a better one, you know, it, it does still prevent almost 6,000 illnesses. Um, and, you know, they're really just a lot of nasty viruses that can give you flu-like symptoms. I know a few years ago I got my flu shot. My husband and I both got sick. We, uh, we went down in bed. We had uh, chills and shakes and sweats. And, but the fact is um, we don't know, was that the flu or was it one of half a dozen things that cause flu-like symptoms? There are just a lot of things that can make you sick. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question at the peak of flu season, Liz, um, is it too late to get the flu shot? Uh, maybe. What doctors have told me is that uh, maybe not, but get it today. Um, and the reason is that um, it takes two weeks for the vaccine to be fully effective. That's not a weakness of the vaccine. That's just how long your immune system takes to make antibodies. So it's going to take your body a couple weeks to make antibodies against the flu. So um, if you haven't gotten the flu shot, uh, doctors say, yes, get one today and then put it on your calendar to get one next October. And then as far as when we think about complications uh, that um, uh, come about when people get the flu and don't have uh, the flu shot, um, also, you know, the likelihood of catching pneumonia. I mean, there are other other, um, vaccines that also help with that to lessen that likelihood. Yeah, for older people, there is uh, a pneumonia vaccine. Um, Kids, of course, get a, a variety of vaccines that can prevent them against respiratory illness. So for older people, they do recommend um, those shots. You know, one, one reason why older people are at risk, they tend to have more chronic uh, conditions. You know, they may have asthma or some kind of other breathing problems. They may have heart problems. And when you get old, uh, your body is breaking down and doesn't work as well. Your vision's not as great. Your hearing starts to go, maybe your memory, your knees. Your immune system, unfortunately, is the same. An, an old person's immune system just doesn't work as well. So they get sick more often. 
and they don't take up the vaccine as well as others. Um, there have been some studies in Japan that actually showed the best way to protect old people was to vaccinate kids because kids take up the vaccine great. They have super strong immune systems. They're germy little vectors of disease. Um, and they found that if they could just vaccinate uh, lots and lots of kids, that was the best way to protect old people. Mm. Well, I want to thank Liz Zabo for joining us here on Where We Live. She's senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Um, as we all pay attention to this new coronavirus, it's also important to remember to get the flu shot. Uh, uh, it's more likely that we will get the flu than coronavirus. Uh, Liz, thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. Thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Uh, thanks to Robin Doyen Aiken on the phones today. You can learn more about the show. You can download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>